Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloen. California Trout recently celebrated 50 years as a conservation organization dedicated to making sure the state's salmonid species like salmon, steelhead, and trout have healthy, clean, cold waters to thrive in. When watersheds are healthy ecosystems, trout tend to flourish as an indicator species of environmental health. Our guest for this episode is the executive director of California Trout, Curtis Knight. And full disclosure here, my daughter is a project manager for the organization as a hydrologist based in Mount Shasta. But I've been a supporter of Cal Trout for years as one of the few environmental organizations that I choose to send a few dollars to on a regular basis. In fact, California Trout got a perfect score recently from Charity Navigator, so I know that my hard-earned dollars are truly going where they belong, to science-based solutions that benefit clean, cold water for both fish and people. Curtis Knight joins us now to talk about California Trout and some of the restoration projects they're involved with throughout the state. Curtis Knight, welcome to Blue Dot. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Dave. One of the things I'd really like to know uh, before we get into California trout, is about you. How did you first get interested in the world of, I don't know, fly fishing or and trout? And, and how did you come to this organization? How did, how did that all happen? Tell us about your path here. Yeah, well, I grew up in Mount Shasta, which was an awesome experience. But I think as a lot of 17, 18 year olds, wherever you grow up, boy, you got to get out of there. And that's how I felt. I was like, I got to get out of this place. But still, even growing up around here, you can't help but get the rivers and the mountains sort of absorbed into your into your into your body. So I always had that with me. And going to school took a little bit to figure it out, but really gravitated towards water towards the end. Um, and you know, things like reading Cadillac Desert in an English class and and sort of several other things during my undergrad sort of steered me towards water. And I came out of school with a sort of a generalized environmental planning degree that I really felt like I really wanted to focus more on water and fish was a good way to do that. I wanted to specialize a little bit. So I was lucky enough to get into a graduate program at Utah State University and and did some really cool fish research stuff, learned all about fish, had a great time, met some great people, made some good contacts and Got a job out of graduate school caretaking the McLeod River Preserve, which was kind of a circumstance thing. Um, ended up writing my thesis down there. Is that the, the Nature Conservancy yeah, Preserve? Yeah, working for the Nature Conservancy. Mm-hmm. Yep, working for the Nature Conservancy. Moved down there with my wife and um, wrote my thesis. Thought it'd be a great place, cabin in the woods, to write a thesis. Yeah. There are some distractions down there, like fishing, which is really where I learned to fly fish, really. I mean, I kind of did a little bit before, but got the crash course down there for a couple of years, and that was amazing. Um, I was going to say, what what an amazing, if you're going to learn oh, to fly fish, you yeah. know, anywhere on earth, you could do worse than the McLeod River. Yeah, totally. And you got all these people coming in, giving you advice and it was neat just to spend the seasons on the river there, living down there was Pretty incredible, but it was time to get a real job and um, took a job with the Nature Conservancy in Chico, actually. I think where you are, Dave. Well, I'm in Red Bluff, but the station's in Chico. Yeah. You're in Red yeah. Bluff. Okay. All right. Yeah. Worked down there for about a year with the Nature Conservancy and was enjoying that a lot. We're doing some really cool 
riparian restoration work, um, some of it was taken almond walnut orchards out of production that were, you know, having trouble with river meander and erosion and things like that and replanting with native vegetation. Really cool project. A lot of people there. Cal Trout then flies a job to open an office in Mount Shasta. And I was like, wow, how many fish jobs are going to open up in my hometown? So we talked about it, thought about it, and made the leap from a big, the big nature conservancy to the small cow trout at the time. It was like five or six people. When was this? Like what year would this be? Yeah. So this is a while ago, Dave. This is like 2000. And now you're the executive director for California Trout. Right. And so let's talk about California Trout. Give us a brief origin story for it. Yeah. Well, I think the if we go way back, I mean, we're 52 years old now. And that started really Trout Unlimited chapter, a bunch of Bay Area primarily people, you know, thought like they wanted to have a little more say and control over the funds and what they did. And so long story short, they split from Trout Unlimited back in 1971, started California Trout, and away it went. And it's evolved a lot over the decades to to where we are today. How has it evolved in your time? Because it seems to me, just in the last 20 years, I can recall it being a kind of a very small organization. And then when I started to, uh, I donate to uh, environmental organizations, yours and the Mono Lake Committee and the great work Mm, done by Jeffrey McQuilkin and the people down there. And the reason I I do that is because I feel like my my hard-earned dollars that I yeah. you know want to spend on an environmental cause, they're they're well used by those two organizations, yours and them. But I'd like to know, like, what have you observed in your time with Cal Trout from when you started at that little office up there in Mount Shasta to now being the executive director? How has the, the organization, you know, flowered and evolved? Yeah, I, you know, I think it started a lot of the focus was on, I mean, even simple things like some of the first things that Caltrout was involved with in the 70s was the catch and release epic. You know, that was one thing that uh, was not well established and and was something they really led the charge on, helped design the logo for the catch and release idea and really promote that as a central tenet of, of fisheries management. You know, that's something that we kind of take for granted today, but it, it's sort of where it started. Well, it's still, there are still a lot of people out there who don't really get that, you know, they're not maybe fly anglers, but I get it all the time if I go happen to go fly Mm -hmm. fishing and somebody will ask me, it's like, well, did you eat them? And I'm like, no, I I catch and release them. And then I get these looks like, what? Why? Very confused. Right. Yeah, that's true. You know, I think at the time too, it was a lot of concern about you know, the, the 20, 30 fish being taken. And, and even, even with the, you know, the pressure was just too much for a lot of our wild streams to keep up with. So I think we've gotten a much better balance now, and it's really instituted in the state management of a lot of our healthy waterways where you don't need to stock fish. Um, you, you manage the pressure from a, you know, a catch and release standpoint or a very limited catch standpoint. And, if the habitat's healthy enough, it tends to take care of itself. So we're involved with things like that. We did some Hat Creek restoration work early on, which is really a grassroots kind of volunteer thing. Took on some big legislative policy legal issues. Um, 
helped pass the state wild and scenic rivers act which was a really significant act that came into play just at the right time i mean i think one of the things that the passage of that legislation did was totally kill dos rios dam which was sort of a trinity lake type dam that would have dammed up the headwaters of the uh, eel river and sent that water over into the central valley so we're really lucky to to stop that one in its tracks wow and um for you know a lot of people might think that this is a you know a fishing organization but it's not and that's the reason i like to support it uh, to me the salmonids the the trout salmon steelhead they are canaries in the coal mine to me if you have a healthy watershed you're going to have healthy fish in it because the water is going to be clean and cold and they can thrive in there and when they can't then that tells me i've got an unhealthy watershed ecosystem so your your motto which i really like is fish water people it's really not about just fish is it no that would be nice some days but um no it's really about water in California, that's kind of where it it starts and how everything interacts with that. That's that's sort of the world that we work in is California water. And you're absolutely right. These are cold water loving fish. They're resilient, they're hardy, but they're also, you know, sensitive to water quality and temperature. And as you mentioned, they 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 tell you a lot. If they're doing good, it tells you a lot of other things are doing doing good as well. Yeah. And um well, let's talk about before we go on. California trout is is a cool name. There are, there are a lot of interesting species of trout in California, aren't there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's 32 different kinds. Wow. And I say kinds, not species, um, because it gets really confusing in the trout world when you start to to parse up the species, subspecies, and that sort of thing. But I think it surprises people the amount of diversity that we have, and I, you know, California lovers people that know california immediately know that one of the most amazing things about our state is just how geographically and habitat diverse we are you know i've i continually get amazed by this you know visiting a project up on the on the north coast where i'm looking at crystal clear water and and the biggest trees in the world and and salmon and steelhead swimming swimming by and then, um, you know, the next week you can be standing in the the Owens River Valley looking up at 14,000 foot Sierra Peaks and just thinking, where where am I? Or or dealing with, a, you know, a fish passage barrier and, you know, down on the on the south coast by by Malibu or something, you know, it's just incredible. I think us Californians know that, appreciate that about our state and. And when you think about all those different habitats and all those opportunities for fish to evolve, they have. And we have 32 different kinds of trout, salmon, and steelhead in the state. Yeah, that's quite, you know, that's that's a lot of diversity. And it, like you said, it echoes the diversity of the state and its geography. So let's kind of go through uh, the state of California that California trout is dedicated to, uh, region by region. And let's talk about some of the activities and projects you've got going on there. So let's start uh, in the Southern California area along the South Coast, because you mentioned Malibu, which mm-hmm. is a dear place to me. I grew up there. And uh, oh, yeah, yep, going to, you know, to, to the old Ringe Ranch there up there, yeah. you know, the original uh, owners of Malibu. Did you catch Steelhead in, well, in Malibu I was, Creek? I was going to yeah. tell you, I'm not in yeah. Malibu Creek. I, I didn't 
fish for them. Um, they were probably there, and I was just a little kid and unaware of that. But when I got a little bit older and started to really get into outdoors, I was up uh, in Morro Bay on a creek in Montana, De Oro State Park, and mm-hmm. hiking along this creek. And all of a sudden, this big, powerful fish just goes swimming past me. Uh, and I was just like, what is that? And I got a good look at it, and it's like, that's a rainbow trout. It's like all silvery and huge. It's like, what is that? And I asked somebody later, and oh, yeah, it's a steelhead. So, uh, yeah, I did have some experiences with that. But um, Malibu is an amazing place. When I lived there, it was, you know, not the Malibu of today. It was like, you know, kind of beach shacks and stuff like that. But wow. tell us about some of the activities that are going on there, uh, especially with the Ringe Dam. Yeah, it's Fish Passage. I mean, that's kind of the name of the game for Southern Steelhead. There's remarkably some really pretty good habitat in some of these Southern California streams. Santa Margarita River, Malibu Creek is certainly in there. Tribuco Creek by San Juan Capistrano has some great habitat, but there's these big barriers that block fish, usually down pretty low in the watershed, you know, whether it's highways, rail lines, or in the case of Ringe Dam on Malibu Creek, it's a dam that was put in hundred years ago almost. And uh, it's, it's not served its purpose for 80 of those years. Um, it's filled with sediment. It's not real big, but it's really difficult to try to remove. And it's been on a lot of people's radar to remove for a long time. And we have a lot of traction right now. You know, you've been hearing about, you've been in this world, you've been hearing about Ringe Dam for really too long, but we're, getting some good traction. It's a partnership with state parks who actually owns the dam now. And they're very motivated. A lot of it's coming down to an engineering issue where sediment and what do you do with that sediment that's built up behind the dam? If you just let it go, remove the dam and just let it go, you cause flooding issues potentially and and some real problems, especially down for down in the Malibu, Malibu estuary area. So trying to figure out the engineering of how to deal with the sediment, it's one of the, often one of the biggest issues with dam removal, and it certainly is with Ringe. But we're excited about a timeline that has you know, some construction designs being done now and hopefully starting to, to work on within the next five years removing that dam. Yeah, it's kind of a catch-22 with those types of dams because, you know, on the one hand, they become kind of pointless because the sediment builds up. And then, you know, on the other hand, it's hard to remove them because the sediment has built up. Yep. It's always about the sediment. You know, sometimes there's toxins behind the sediment. Inglebright Dam is a good example of that, where it's filled with mercury from all the the mining of the past. And, you know, there's not a real great solution for how to figure out what to do with all that mercury behind the dam. And before we leave the world of Southern California and those amazing steelhead down there, uh, I did see something uh, uh, in the headlines about a a court case where a decision was made. Do you have the chance to tell us a bit about that? There was some some success fighting for the steelhead. Yeah, you know, the the Southern steelhead have been listed under the Federal Endangered Species Act, but not under the California Endangered Species Act. So we've led the charge on on a petition to get them listed. And that's been um, grinding its way through the process. And yes, just in the last couple of weeks, we had a a sort of procedural issue where we were defending that from some uh, United Water Agency in particular. 
uh, we won a, a court hearing there that kept the listing process on track. So hopefully by early spring, we'll have a California Endangered Species Act listed Southern, Cal Southern Steelhead. And it's important to note that there's some real compliments to, you'd think the federal ESA would be enough, but there's a lot that comes with uh, um, the California ESA too, including additional mitigation requirements for some projects and um, also an increased awareness by counties, especially for the endangered status of those fish. Yeah. Well, I, they, they are an amazing species of fish. And I just remember the encounter I had with that one so many years ago stuck in my head as one of the most amazing nature experiences I ever had in Southern California. Well, yeah, you're lucky to see that, Dave. That, very lucky. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we return, we'll continue our conversation with Curtis Knight, the executive director for the nonprofit conservation organization, California Trout. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back. And thanks for listening to Blue Dot. Now let's return to our visit with Curtis Knight, Executive Director of California Trout, as we talk about their watershed restoration projects throughout the Golden State. So that takes us to our next region of Caltrout's interest, the, the, the Sierra Headwaters. Tell us about some of the interesting projects going on there in the Eastern Sierra. Yeah, we've had a long history over there. Our office in Mammoth, uh, such an amazing spot, I think. I love it over there. It's it's uh, amazing country, just so different, so big, big sky, big mountains, lots of spring water. The Mono Lake case, I think most people are familiar with. You talked about the Mono Lake Committee, who's been our partner on this for really this started in the 80s, where we won a court battle along with Audubon was involved with this too, that had to do with public trust doctrine and also had to do with a fishing game code 5937 that simply says anybody who diverts a stream has a dam there needs to leave enough water below that dam to keep fish in good condition and that was the that was the law we used to help rewater a lot of tributaries to mono lake for winning that against um los angeles department of water and power that's one of the things that really helped raise mono lake levels and and um really make that a uh, make sure that lake doesn't go dry. Such an important uh, part of the ecosystem there. And those streams that flow into to Mono Lake are quite remarkable as well. Rush Creek, pretty pretty cool to see a lot of the restoration work that's been going on there. So a lot of history there. The one thing I'll say about that office is what's really where we center a lot of our Sierra work. And some of that has to do with Sierra Meadows where we're part of a broader, much broader, a lot of people involved with this. Um, American Rivers is involved, um, Point Blue, Trout Unlimited, a bunch of us really trying to restore 30,000 acres of High Sierra Meadows by 2030. And meadow restoration, really important part of the equation, as, especially if snow levels keep rising. It's important to hold that water up high in the Sierra as long as we can slow release during the, the dry summer months 
if that snowpack starts to diminish, really puts more pressure on those meadows to access spondages and, and hold that water back for slow release during the the dry summer months. And unfortunately, we have 90,000 acres of degraded meadows up there. Um, so there's a lot of work to do. And that's really, um, you know, it's really a, a climate and drought issue that we have these these uh, these meadows that don't don't act the way they historically did. And we're finding that by restoring them, reestablishing meander, getting that that stream to slow down through that meadow, spread out, sink into the ground. You get restored meadows, you get species habitat for birds and fish, you get also um, water retention, of course, but you also get meadow carbon sequestration in these meadows too. So healthy meadows are carbon sinks, uh, degraded meadows are carbon emitters. So right there, we have multiple benefits. And when you have those healthy meadows, um, which are a vital part of the watershed, when you have healthy meadows, those meadows also are mitigators against wildfire. Um, I've seen that myself in Lassen Park where the Dixie Fire blasted through. And, and yet in this one little section where there was a beautiful meadow, um, they were able to you know keep the fire out of there because just the fact that that meadow was there holding that water, you know, it was less prone to wildfire. Absolutely. And, you know, you see that if you look at a lot of these aerials, you'll say, you know, this is a meadow right here and you can't really see it because the meadows dried up, the forest is encroached and you don't have these big wet buffers, like you're saying that, that, you know, in a healthy standpoint could act as fire breaks, really important aspect, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. If it's just a dense stand of trees instead of a meadow, then the fire's just going to sweep through there. Absolutely. And there are some pretty amazing species of trout. We were talking about all those different kinds of fish in the High Sierra, especially in, you know, the state fish is up there, right? State fish is up there. Yeah, the headwaters of the Kern is quite remarkable. That's one place where we've been working where you have golden trout, uh, sort of the native golden trout there. You have little Kern rainbow. Um, there's a couple little, there's a lot of uh, interesting genetics up there where these, these, uh, rainbow golden trout variants have been isolated for a long time and really work still being done on trying to sort out all the genetics up there. But yes, genetic diversity really high along the crest of the Sierra. Yeah, I know there are there are people who travel from all over to go to the high Sierra that down there in the Kern Basin and and catch a golden trout because they are so unique and beautiful. Yeah, it's on everybody's list for sure. Oh, another interesting fish there before we leave that that region is the Lahontan cutthroat. Are you are some things going on with that that you can tell us about? Yeah, there's some streams, especially in the Walker drainage. You know, the Walker is that terminal basin, flows out into Walker Cool Lake in Nevada. And the along that whole slope there are Lahontan cutthroat trout. You now they're the they're sort of the native trout of the old Bonneville Basin, the Great Basin. And uh, we, we have those fish here in our state. They're, they're unique um, native fish. And we've been doing a lot of work to restore them. One of the biggest impacts to them is brook trout. So brook trout tend to, and, and rainbows to some degree, but these non-native fish sort of crowding them out. Let's, let's stop right there. Yeah. Brook trout are kind of, they're, they're kind of the enemy of our native trout, aren't they? Oh yeah. Yeah. They're, they're good. They, they get in and especially in colder water and, and good habitat, they do really well. Uh, they do really well in the lakes problem for golden trout also. 
and especially for Lahatan trout. So a lot of efforts there to try to beat back the the brook trout and reestablish Lahatan cutthroat trout over on the east slope. Okay, ethics question for you. Yeah. If I catch brook trout, should I should I not put them back? Should I not release them? Eat them, Dave. I would eat them. You know, they're really good. That's one thing they got going for them. Get get your get your fry pan out and a little butter and drop them in there and they're, right. they're good to eat. So yeah, permission to eat. Thank you. Okay, I, <laughs> I know I know some places where they're pretty plentiful. Yeah. And, uh, my daughter who works for you is always telling me, Dad, just get them out of there. <laughs> yep. yep. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, the the High Sierra just magnificent part of California, and uh, it just such a great part of the heritage of of trout fishing in America. You know, the Eastern Sierra there is like where so many people, you know, especially from the Los Angeles area, get their first experience of you know. Seeing a rainbow trout out in the wild, you know, it's a pretty amazing place. It really is. And that that's an important aspect of it, too. So relatively close to such a large amount of Californians, it's a, it's a great place to start to tie those things together about, you know, where your water comes from, how you can keep it healthy. I think that's one of the things that you know, can be a real eye opener for people who start to put all those points together. It is a real, real, a, a very real realization, if I can put it that way, when you, you know, take a shower or drink a glass of water in the San Fernando Valley, and then you go up into the High Sierra, up Highway 395, and you realize this is where that water is coming from. It's, you know, it's, it's a precious resource. Yeah, it, it, it is. And I, I, that's one of the things I love about people that get involved with you know, even, even fishing, you know, a lot of people, um, take up the fly rod and jump out into the stream and go, wow, it's beautiful here. And, oh, wow, there's these threats and what, where's this water going? And, and all of a sudden you start pulling on the string and it, you know, you start going down the path of better understanding California's water. Yeah. And, uh, California's water is, if you were to pick out one most complex issue in California, I would have to say throughout history, water is it. Absolutely. You know, I, I think it, um, yeah, you can't argue that. Look at all the contentious issues out there that are around California water. And and the challenges to that are just becoming greater. You know, we've always been a very variable state as far as precip, you know, the Mediterranean climate. And we're seeing that variability increase. And you can't argue that looking at the past, you know, five years where we had three of the driest, three of the driest years on record in over a thousand years. And then, uh, and then one of the wettest we've seen in a long time. So that variability is here and it's a huge factor in, in how we, we try and manage our water supply throughout a year. All right. Well, let's hop over the mountains. Uh, easy for me to say heart. It was very difficult for the Donner party, <laughs> yeah. but uh, let's go over, over the mountains to the central Valley, the huge, the great central Valley. Uh, that I live in. Uh, and what are some of the interesting things that are going on there with California trout? Yeah, our Central Valley work is really science focused uh, at first. You know, it's a neat story where Jacob Katz um, started working for us back in 2012 with a PhD out of Davis, an idea, an idea that he could grow fish in rice fields to mimic lost floodplain habitat. And a lot of people thought he's crazy, um, but there was a lot. There's others doing this science too, trying to prove this concept. And 
Jacob started out with a couple of five acre experiments to show that during fallow times of rice fields, think January, February, March, you could grow fish in these habitats that had some of the attributes of a healthy floodplain. The water was a little bit warmer in the winter time, which better for growth. And the most important thing is that they were chock full of food. So little Daphnia, these little crustaceans uh, sort of emerge in that productive habitat. And, and those fish were able to not only um, survive, but they really thrived. And you saw growth rates that were 10 times more than what you were seeing with fish in the river, in the main stem Sacramento River. And the important thing to remember about the Sacramento River is that it's a highly altered system. It's levied. In many ways, it's cut off from its historic floodplain. It lacks the productivity it used to have. I mean, that river used to, with the San Joaquin, most years fill up most of the Central Valley like a big bathtub. And all these salmon and steelhead who were spawned in the McLeod, the Pitt, the Yuba, the American, the Feather, and so on, would trickle their way down into this big productive bathtub where they would grow fat and get big and head out into the ocean. And, and the science is pretty clear on the bigger you are as a juvenile hitting the ocean, the better, better rates you have of returning. So how do we, within a very altered landscape, how do we insert some of these natural processes back in there? And got a really good partnership with the farming community there, the rice farmers in particular, to do two things. One is to where we can put fish out onto these rice fields and, and sort of mimic that productive lost floodplain habitat. We've really been focusing a lot lately on adding to that fish food, growing fish food and putting it to the river. So a lot of these lands are on the other side of levees. You can't get fish to them right now. So how do we then bring the food to the fish in the river? And so we've been doing, again, starting with the science and experiments, close partnership with UC Davis on this to work with landowners, rice farmers, while their fields are fallow, to flood them up and, and monitor them over the course of a couple of weeks. It's pretty much all it takes to get uh, peak abundance of these little Daphnia, these crustaceans. And it's really a matter of just flooding the field, letting the sunlight do its work. The phytoplankton starts, the Daphnia pop up. All of a sudden, you have this robust, very nutrient-rich environment. And we release the gates and dump that water into the big Sacramento River. And we've been doing experiments where we line up cages up to six miles downstream. We're seeing a positive response of some of these inputs. And a lot of that has to do with scale. So this started out with just uh, you know a couple hundred acres. Last year, we did over 35,000 acres under management this way. And this year, we're moving towards 70,000 acres of management. Um, and there's a lot more to be had there. So I think you know, those types of projects at scale mimicking some of the lost natural processes are one way that we can work to get a little bit of, you know, the natural system back into our highly altered landscapes. One of the things I love about that story is it alters the 
the narrative of fish versus farmers, the, 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 their enemies, uh, that they, they don't have the common interests that they really actually do. This is, act, this is a real win-win situation for both the rice farmers and the, the habitat, isn't it? Yeah, it can be. You know, we don't always agree on everything, but we have a lot of shared interests and that's water. And I think uh, those those farmers, there's a lot of them that get that. And and I think one of the drivers there is is they understand that the more fish there are in the system, the better water security they have. You know, they get shut off when fish populations plummet. So there's a lot of shared interest there and in having a healthy a healthy system. They've also seen a lot of them it done with ducks. You know, they were they were somewhat part of that too, where in the 90s they got shut shut down from burning rice fields, flooded them instead during the winter to take care of some of the disease issues and replenishment issues that they needed for those rice fields. And all of a sudden the ducks moved back and you know waterfowl in the Central Valley is a real success story. So I think they see that too. And they see an opportunity to do a similar thing with fish. Yeah, that's a it's a great story and uh, and still unfolding. Okay, well, let's head from the Central Valley over to one of my favorite parts of California, the Bay Area. Tell mm-hmm. us about some of the interesting projects going on in that part of your world. Yeah, it's one of our newest regions. I mean, it's still about what seven eight years old or so, but we've always been headquartered in San Francisco, but not always done, and we've not always had this regional conservation approach like we've done everywhere else and we're starting to do that more um, have a great team there working on on issues everywhere from walker creek up in marin county which is a really interesting watershed i think a lot of people have heard of lagunitas creek this is kind of the sister river just to the north comes out right at the mouth of of uh tamales bay has coho salmon in it has a lot of opportunity to for education, we're working with the uh, Marin County Schools. There's a Walker Creek Ranch that Marin County owns where every fifth grader uh, goes to school in Marin and even surrounding counties go through that system. So I've talked to a lot of people over the years who have gone through that. In fact, we're sponsoring a graduate student at UC Davis who went through there as a fifth grader, and he's now doing research for us on on Walker Creek. So that's a, that's a really exciting one. It kind of underscores one of the benefits of doing these things in the Bay Area is that they're a little more accessible to a big population base to, to, to see what's going on. Pescadero Creek down in San Mateo County is another remarkable one that's really close. Jump over the hill from San Mateo and, and, and the peninsula area, and you can be on Pescadero Creek, which is really remarkable creek. San Mateo RCD has done a lot of great work there on restoration. We're doing a lot of work to monitor fish to, with um, uh, pit tag arrays, these passive integrated transponders to tag fish and get a better sense of when fish are moving in, population size, species composition, those sorts of things. So nice that it's accessible too. We bring a lot of kids out there, others to sort of show them, show them uh, what some fish science looks like real time. Yeah, and RCD is Resource Conservation District, right? Yes, uh, the Resource Conservation District. They tend to be county-based and throughout the state and often one of our strongest partners throughout the state. Certainly. And, yeah, you mentioned kids. Uh, there really is no better way to hook a kid on nature 
um, no pun intended there as far as the fishing stuff goes, but to, just to get them in a stream to see all the amazing things that live in, in stream water. Oh yeah. Pick up a rock, see what's underneath it. And there's a, there's an inch long stone fly. It blows everybody's mind. Yeah. And, and just, there's just so beautiful and fun to be in great place to play when you're little. So I can see that being a great influence. So somebody starting out with on a field trip with you guys and then going to work for you. That's, that's a wonderful story. Yeah. If you're just joining us, our guest is Curtis Knight. Curtis is the executive director of California Trout, a nonprofit conservation organization dedicated to protecting clean, cold water for the state's salmonid species, including salmon, steelhead, and trout. Salmonids are an indicator species for overall environmental health. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. And we're back, and thanks for listening. Let's return now to our conversation with Curtis Knight, Executive Director for California Trout, as we talk about their watershed restoration projects throughout the state. You have a new uh, area up here, the Mount Lassen region. Tell us about what's going on up here. Well, we started out with a with a debate about whether it's Mount Lassen or Lassen Peak. Well, it's Lassen Peak. Geographically, It's that's the name of it. But really, the local people here call it Mount Lassen. So I think, I think calling it Mount Lassen is okay. Okay. Well, I, I, for the record, I was a Lassen Peak advocate, but I get you. Mount Lassen seems like it rolls off people's tongue more. Yeah. Tell us about what's going on uh, in the, in the Mount Lassen region. Yeah. We're excited about opening a Chico office, working in the Lassen Peak area, if I can sneak that in. Um, so many great rivers that come off of uh, sort of similar to Mount Shasta, where, where you have this volcanic area that a lot of springs emanate from. And Battle Creek, Big Chico Creek are two that we're really focused on right now. We got a we got a big grant to work on Big Chico Creek and move a passage barrier there that will open up fish up into the the upper upper watershed and really great too and that kind of brings in that community element we're working closely with the machupta tribe you know working with local tribes is one of our main partners throughout the state the machupta tribe been great battle creek there's huge amounts of opportunity there sort of similar to what we're doing over on the eel river where pg&e has a whole series of dams on battle creek that they don't want anymore and trying to figure out how we can get those dams out of there and open up Battle Creek, which arguably is one of the more important spawning and rearing tributaries to the Sacramento Valley system. Um, and really a great opportunity that a not, a, not a lot of other tributaries have to really open up that watershed, especially important for winter run Chinook salmon. Okay, let's uh, leave our area here and head north to where you are right now. You're you're recording this from Mount Shasta. What are some of the projects going on around Mount Shasta? Yeah, big office up here. It's pretty remarkable uh, what what Damon and his team have, have got going. Um, we're really excited about sticking to the the springs emanating from these volcanoes that we have 
Yeah, we're really excited about our source water protection program. We got a we got a grant from uh, the state to work on better understanding the spring waters that emanate from Mount Shasta. Tyana, our staff up here, is leading that project to better understand these amazing springs that come off. And I think most people, you know, know Fall River, one of the largest spring creeks really in the lower 48, um, Hat Creek, uh, the McLeod River is spring fed, the upper sack to, to a large degree. Um, Bernie Creek has some amazing springs. I think everybody has a pretty good idea of the amount of cold water that comes out of Mount Shasta. It goes into uh, Shasta Reservoir. And you can follow those water molecules literally all the way down to San Diego. So the importance of this as a source water area, and especially during drought years where, you know, we're, we're, one of the things we're really trying to answer is how do these spring waters change volume wise during the course of these, um, during the course of these drought cycles and wet years and things like that. And, you know, the short answer is we, we got to do a lot of research is needed. There is some indication that they don't change a whole lot, but one of the fascinating things that we're, we're really trying to get better data on is the age of these springs. So when that water molecule falls as rain or snow and goes underground in these extremely porous volcanic soils, how long does it take before that water emerges from the mouth, from the, from the mouth of the spring and preliminary data suggests it's variable. Some of it's 10 to 14 year old, like in the case of the McLeod. And again, a lot of this data we're, we're trying to, um, you know, confirm and some of the, some of them are greater than 50 years old. So that also gives you a sense that what we're seeing coming out of those springs is, is really more of a factor of what happened 10, 20, 30 or more years ago, what's going to happen when some of this, you know, this historic dry period over the last 20 years we've been involved with, what's that going to do with our springs? So that's an issue. Yeah. That's an issue for all of us here in California. Yeah. That's kind of scary. Um, yeah. Cause it's just such a beautiful area. All of those rivers uh, are some of the most magnificent uh, fisheries in California, you got, you know, like you've mentioned them. And I know you have like the, the five river challenge that you guys do. And I'm, I don't know if you want to get into that, but I know the five rivers are the Sacramento lower and upper, the McLeod fall and hat Creek. And those are just magnificent pieces of water. Yeah. Well, it's just, a, it's just the Sacramento, the upper Sacramento. And then it's the pit river. That's the, Oh, it's yeah. the pit river. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We need to, we need to challenge people a little bit, get them down there into yeah. the pit river. Yeah, that's also just gorgeous and rugged down. Yeah, there. wild country. Okay, well, let's move from the Mount Shasta region over to our last part of the state, and one of the most important for you guys right now with what's going on on the Klamath River. Let's talk about the North Coast and some of your efforts there. Yeah, I'm boy, it's it's hard doing this because we're giving everything such short thrift, but it's um, you know, the Shasta region has so much going on, and and um. You know, the Klamath sort of nests itself. I'm sort of our lead on the Klamath dams issue itself. It's one of the few projects I still am very involved with. And we're, of course, really excited about the progress there. I mean, this is a whole whole discussion in and of itself. But I think a lot of people have seen the headlines lately where one of the three dams has been removed and the other three are on track for removal 
next year. And this is an ongoing thing that that one dam was removed and the stage is being set right now. Uh, big tunnels being put in the bottom of each of the three remaining reservoirs so that they can begin to drain them starting in January. That's going to be a big moment where the plug is pulled and these reservoirs start to drain out over the course of a couple of months, moving sediment downstream during the winter, hopefully have a, a wet winter to help carry that, that sediment downstream. Uh, Big Klamath River has, we believe, a lot of ability to assimilate a lot of that sediment and move it through. And then by next summer, construction will deconstruction will start on the remaining three simultaneously. And by the fall of 2024, we should have a free-flowing Klamath River, the second largest river in our state. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that's been an epic struggle to to and a lot of cooperation with a lot of different stakeholders to get that to, to actually happen. Uh, so it must be pretty rewarding to be in the midst of that right now. Yeah, I think for a lot of people. And I, you know, I think the one thing to say, one thing to really make sure people understand is what the the tribal communities and how they've really been at the front of this for decades. And it's their culture, their fish people, the Yurok, the Karuk, the Klamath tribes, all along that that river, it's still wild. The Shasta, the Shasta Nation is in there. It's very much a tribal river. Um, they've really spearheaded this effort. We're not here without their grassroots work, their leadership, their passionate voice there. Um, there's so many twists and turns to how this has played out, even over the past 20 years where the tribes have stepped up and and played a leadership role. And um, yeah, it's very gratifying to see not just a river be restored, but but you see communities having a lot of hope and excitement around it too. And, and it's not just the Klamath River, although that's grabbing all the headlines and a major point of emphasis. There's a lot of really interesting work going on in the North Coast, um, like like place like Prairie Creek, for example. Um, and you mentioned estuaries earlier and the importance of them. And as we move into this world of a, a changing climate, it seems to me, and from all I've read and studied, that estuaries are and wetlands along the coast are some of the most important buffer zones uh, against f sea level rise and issues like that. So tell us a bit about some of the cool things going on over there at a place like Prairie Creek. Yeah, estuaries are so important, and most of them are really impacted. It's where a lot of development has occurred going into estuaries. But it intuitively, I think everybody understands how important they are. You think about these, especially these large river systems and even small ones, every fish has to pass through there as an adult and especially as as a youngster. And, you know, we talked about the Central Valley floodplain aspect of this whole thing. It's the very same concept where healthy estuaries provide these sort of last stop for fish to acclimate, start to get conditioned to entering into salt water, this amazing transformation that our salmon and steelhead do to go from freshwater to salt as juveniles. And the estuaries give them a spot to get ready to do that, to, to get prepared for it. Abundance of food, good temperatures, grow, get fat and healthy before they launch out into the, the big leagues of the ocean. So extremely important, and a lot of them, unfortunately, extremely uh, 
extremely altered. The Redwood Creek Prairie Creek system is really an interesting one. Prairie Creek hits Redwood Creek just a few miles up from the ocean. And it's kind of an estuary uh, situation in and of itself where the two come together. Um, and there was an old mill site there that pushed the Prairie Creek up uh, up against um, the highway 101. It's right next to 101. Created this straight channel that didn't provide the, the habitat that it could. So we've been working with Save the Redwoods League and the Yurok Tribe and Redwood National Park to restore this really um, important habitat area. And it's also been an amazing community engagement type project too. I think a lot of ours are, we're out in these regions and yes, that restoration is important to, to the species and the habitat on the ground, but also the opportunity, especially with this one, fairly accessible right on 101. A lot of visitors, we've been doing a lot of tours there. Mary Burke and our crew up there. Um, the Yurok Tribal Construction Corporation is a separate corporation that the Yurok Tribe is, has developed are the lead restoration contractor for this. And that in itself is such a neat story. We've, 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 there's, there's Yurok tribal members who work for the corporation, who are operating the equipment, who are doing the restoration design, putting in the, 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 the logs, the gravel, the stream meanders and things like that. And you can see the satisfaction of them working on their ancestral lands to make them better. So it's a really, really neat project in that aspect too. Wow, that's a great story and a, and a, and a good place to end. We're about it. We're out of time, but before I let you go, um, as briefly as you can, what's your favorite aspect of your work being the executive director of California trout? Yeah, I feel really lucky. I think, um, to me, you know, it's the people I work with is, is really the main thing. We have an amazing team who are just so passionate and committed and work so hard. And a lot of them could be doing a lot of different things with their professional careers. And they've chosen to do this. Um, and I think one thread that runs this right through our staff is that, you know, they're here because they want to make a difference. And, and it's pretty satisfying when you get a large group of people feeling like they're making a difference. And, uh, you know, I, so that, that to me is, is, uh, is probably the favorite thing. It really feels like we're, we're making positive change and that's really fulfilling for all of us. Well, Curtis Knight, the executive director of California Trout, thanks for helping give us this overview of your organization and, and work throughout the state of California. Well, Dave, I appreciate the interest and uh, hope, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Thanks again to our guest, Curtis Knight, Executive Director for California Trout, based in San Francisco and with regional offices throughout the state. You can learn more about their work at caltrout.org. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Our theme music, Big Wave Dave, is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. For all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs>